The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I had just arrived in London at 18 and spotted this movie marquee, Meetings with Remarkable Men. The film was about the philosopher Gurdjieff, but it was the title that spoke to me. I wanted to know people like that, people changing the world by the way they lived. I've sought them out ever since, and now we'll hear from many of them on the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women. Welcome to the podcast. Your host, Victoria Moran, author of Creating a Charmed Life, Younger by the Day, and Main Street Vegan, invites you to conversations designed to help you thrive in your body, cozy up to your soul, and use your unique gifts to change the world. Now, here's Victoria. Have you ever thought about continuums? About where you might fit on the line of something expected. We hear about it in terms of sexuality and being non-binary. And I think about it in terms of being a foodie. I appreciate eating for health, but I don't really get the whole gourmet thing and spending a lot on going out to dinner. There's a continuum of just about everything. Did you think that there might be something like that about whether or not you're going to be a mom? Well, we're going to talk about that today with somebody who knows all about it and who has, in fact, written the book on the subject. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran. Welcome to the podcast. It is always such a pleasure to have you and to hang out with some remarkable women. And today I'm particularly tickled to be talking with Ruby Warrington. I remember when I first met her reading that somebody had called her the new age it girl, although at that time we were talking about the now age and mm -hmm. dating all those wonderful things like astrology and tarot cards. And Ruby has written about that and she has written about writing and she has written about being sober curious. In fact, she is the founder of the sober curious movement. She is also the founder of Numinous Books. And she's living right now in Miami, and she has written an amazing new book just about to debut, Women Without Kids. Welcome, Ruby Warrington. 
Thank you for that fabulous introduction, Victoria. It's <laughs> lovely to be speaking with you again. I'm remembering I came on your previous podcast, came to your apartment, and we had a great time then. So it's really lovely to be to be speaking with you again. Well, it's always lovely to connect with you. And I will always remember that you were the last human other than my husband that I hugged prior to the pandemic. The pandemic. <laughs> yes, I was, I was, as I was re- sort of recalling that moment myself, I was reminded of the, the timing of it. Yes, it was just before the pandemic. So, wow, we're in a whole new world. <laughs> Talk about new age. We're in, we're in a whole new world. Well, and, and let's hope that it's a better one. There's just so much to deal with. And certainly someone who has been thinking about whether or not to embark on parenthood has to be thinking about what the world looks like. Mm-hmm. So is that part of what suggested to you that this might be your next book? It wasn't one of the immediate reasons for writing the book, but absolutely it is one of the primary reasons that for younger generations, especially younger millennials and Gen Z, um, you know, the climate, political unrest, the economy, just there are so many huge issues that we face as a society, existential issues, which of course, for anybody considering bringing a child into the world are going to be paramount and are going to be influencing that decision in a major way. Um, my, I came to the book as I have done with all of my books, first and foremost, from a very personal place. And then that's quickly broadened out to looking at how my sort of personal experiences and stories fit within a larger collective story about whatever my subject matter is. And in this instance, um, as somebody who had never wanted to be a mother, who had never aspired to motherhood and who has not had any children, um, I had always felt very other in this identity. I'd always felt like an outsider. Um, I'd always felt confident about this being the right path for me, but it had been lonely and subject to quite a lot of um, stigma, prejudice and judgment on behalf of others. And it was entering my mid forties and looking ahead to menopause that I found myself, um, well, I realized that I didn't have any regrets about not having kids. um, And that also there was no part of me that was sounding an alarm saying, it's now or never. Oh, you forgot to do that thing. You got to do it. And I realized that any doubts I had had about this being the right path for me were actually purely the results of external sort of pressure or um, projections, I suppose, about my decision. And so, yeah, I I came to the project from a place of wanting to, I suppose, valorize the path of non-motherhood, no matter how a person finds themselves there. And this is sort of leads into the second piece of the puzzle, which is just to acknowledge that actually there are many very, very valid reasons not to be a parent. Some of them very positive and empowered. Some of them very painful. You know, for example, with people who've experienced fertility issues or not been able to find a a person that they want to co-parent with or who are very concerned about the climate, for example. And so, yeah, I felt there wasn't really a, um, 
a conversation that did justice to the enormity of this life choice and the all of the different factors that play into our decisions about our procreative potential. And so that was the, yeah, that was the the entry point, I suppose, into deciding to write this book. Well, you've done it brilliantly. And something that I absolutely love about it, because I had been reading through it and reading some of the first parts a couple of days ago. And then today I just jumped in and read almost every single word. I was running out of time and had to skip through a little bit uh, toward the end, but the writing is just splendid. I love how you write. And the other thing that you do that is so wonderful in nonfiction is that you start with story and you're telling us all these interesting facts and these interesting thoughts and ideas to follow, but there's always story. And that's just so easy to relate to. I mean, it literally was just a, I don't want to put this down. I don't want to leave this cafe, but I have to get home to do the interview. So it's a wonderful book. So everybody, whether you have kids, may have kids, don't have kids, whatever, uh, do do um, uh, look at this book, Women Without Kids, because it's amazing. But I want to talk about a couple of your concepts, Ruby. Mm. The motherhood spectrum that I alluded to in the intro versus the mommy binary. What are those? Okay, so <clears throat> this kind of this sort of like grew out of my work with Sober Curious. You mentioned that I coined the term Sober Curious and I've had a couple of books in, in that area, which really was sort of offering a more open-minded way to think and about problem drinking or non-problem drinking that we might like not to be doing. <laughs> and anyway, within that realm, I noticed that there was, you know, we had this this sort of notion that there are normal drinkers and there are problem drinkers when actually what I identified was that all drinking can be problem drinking and that sometimes a lot of the time our drinking sort of exists on a on a spectrum and I took this sort of thinking and applied it to what felt like a very outdated view of motherhood there are either there's mothers and there's there's two sort of versions of the mummy binary right there's mothers and non-mothers Mothers are seen as valid, fully functioning members of society who have fulfilled their purpose to a degree. Non-mothers are often seen as dysfunctional, sad, selfish, um, and perhaps, you know, having missed the point. <laughs> and then within the non-motherhood category, you also have a binary, which is the ones who can't have children, meaning who would have liked to have had children, but maybe they've experienced fertility issues or encountered some of the other problems that I touched on. And the ones who won't have kids, the ones who are selfishly withholding when it comes to their procreative potential. And this just all seemed very um, limiting and toxic, honestly. <laughs> and so I thought about this idea of a spectrum that perhaps actually doesn't it make more sense that any one individual's capacity and aptitude for parenthood exist on a spectrum, a spectrum that will be influenced by all number of factors, everything from the basic personality to the family and culture that they were raised in, the expectations they were subject to, the education they've had, the career path they've staked out for themselves, their financial situation, their relationship status, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of these, of, of course, all of these factors are going to influence 
how a person feels about becoming a parent, how a person feels about being a parent once they have had children, um, and everything in between. And so I present this concept of the motherhood spectrum in an attempt to, yeah, do away with this idea that motherhood is all women's sort of rightful, sort of preordained biological imperative. That's the message that we've had since Adam and Eve <laughs> left the garden or thrown out of the Garden of Eden, right? So, yeah, I just sort of felt like um, it was time to expand our thinking around that, given, and this was the other factor that kind of led to me wanting to write the book, given the fact that the birth rate globally has been in steep and steady decline for at least the past century. You know, women are having far fewer children and more and more women, an increasing minority of women are having no children at all. And so when we look at that huge demographic shift, which people are already saying is reshaping our societies when it comes to the aging economy and aging societies, um, that huge demographic shift represents millions and millions and millions of intimately personal, often very fraught decisions that people are making about whether they want to have children or not. And I just wanted to acknowledge that this is, we're undergoing a huge shift as a society, as a human family, I suppose. And um, yeah, we, we're not really, I don't think we give enough um, weight to this decision, you know, which is really central to every woman's life, to every person's life. It's also, it's a decision that's irreversible, you know, um, and should not be taken lightly. And I think that oftentimes when women express that they are ambivalent about becoming parents or are on the fence about it, or even when they have become parents are not enjoying it as much as they're supposed to, are often made to feel like, yeah, you're not quite, you're kind of missing something. There's, there's not some, something not quite right there. When actually, of course, all of these factors are going to play into that decision. It's rational and responsible, actually, to think before you have a kid. So, so yeah, that was that's where I where I draw people in, and that's where we start the book. Well, you certainly drew me in, and and you reminded me of of a lot of my history. I never wanted to have children, and I remember going in to talk to my gynecologist about getting my tubes tied. I think I was. Mm. I don't know, 30. And she said, well, we always wait until a woman is 35. And I thought, okay, I can do that. And then when I was 32, driving in the rural Midwest after the death and the funeral of the woman who raised me, she was, I, I had a mother, but she, this other person, Didi, she was really the great maternal figure of my life. And then that baby thing hit that you talk about some in the book, mm -hmm. that some women just get this thing of, if I don't have a child, yeah. I cannot breathe another moment on this earth. And when I, I got back to Chicago and, and told my husband, I, I I thought I would have to pick his jaw up off the floor because it was <laughs> it was so surprising. But you know, we we did get pregnant, and my mm -hmm. daughter is absolutely magnificent, and I love her to pieces. And yet, no one ever really explained until reading your book what it's like to be a woman in this world who is somewhere on that spectrum that is not necessarily at one of the far ends. Mm. And 
I I know that one of the things in the book I just thought was so brave that you wrote about you're just not comfortable being around children. And I feel the same way. And I feel that I got kind of an 18-year reprieve when I was raising my own daughter, but I'm just not as comfortable around children as I am around young adults, mature adults, and non-human beings. That's just mm-hmm. how I'm wired. How does that mm-hmm. strike you? What, what, what's your take on comfort levels? Oh, I mean, that's so, thanks for sharing your personal experience of that. Part of the, the goal or my hope for this book, I suppose, is that more people can just share about how it's been for them and where they fall on the spectrum and why. And again, I think that you know, we can orient at different places on the spectrum, different times in our life due to shifting circumstances. And I've definitely spoken to other women who def- thought they probably weren't going to have children and then losing their primary maternal figure really brought something home that this is something that will be lost if I don't do this. something, something important will be lost to me if I don't do this. So that's definitely not an uncommon experience. Um, yeah, I too, I've always felt just sort of at a loss around children. And it's not that I don't like children. It's more that I don't like who I am and how I feel in the presence of children. I just don't know what to do with myself. And I think that maybe I was even a bit like that as a child. I yes, used to me too. play on I used to play on my own quite a lot. I was very yes. self, I was very independent, very self-contained. If I did play with other children, and this is interesting for anyone who's listening who's appreciates astrology we're both I know we're both Aries yes and Aries is sort of the sign of the leader it's a very independent sign it's very self-sufficient and if I was playing games with the other children in the teeny tiny village where I grew up and this is partly because I was the oldest kid in our kind of street I would always be the one kind of making the rules and organizing everybody (laughs) You know, I wasn't ever one of the ones kind of like just playing happily with everybody else. I was either in charge, kind of like everybody were doing this, or I was playing on my own. I was reading. I loved reading from a very early age. I would always have my head in a book, or I was making up stories, like playing among the hedgerows by myself. And that's kind of how I've always been. And I just, yeah, I I, I mean, a psychologist would possibly look at this and you know, say that it reflects my my discomfort being around small children, maybe sort of pulls up some discomfort that I had around being a small child myself and some of the experiences of my early childhood. But what do I do with that information? Well, it doesn't, that doesn't, the root of it doesn't really matter to me. What matters now is that it's okay that I'm not good with kids. And just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I have to be good with kids. My brother my younger brother, um, he's fantastic with kids, always wanted to be a dad, right? Um, but it's me as the the female sibling who was sort of expected to want that or expected to be good at that. I think it's fantastic that he's the one who sort of got the, the nurturing um, paternal instinct, I suppose. And I just didn't get the maternal instinct. And so I don't think that means there's anything wrong with me. I think it just makes me me and that I have talents and gifts that I can use and direct elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I remember when women were supposed to instinctively want to be secretaries. (laughs) We got past that one. 
I didn't know about that. Okay. Wow. Sorry. So (laughs) there's another term that you use that I had not heard before that is called pronatalism. What's that? Mm. Okay. So pronatalism sort of is, could be nested under patriarchy. It's um, an offshoot of patriarchy in a way. Pronatalism is the ideology that says parents are more valid than non-parents. And when you start to when you start to look for it, it's one of those things you start seeing everywhere. Um, pronatalism says that parents are more mature, more responsible, more respectable, have done their duty, um, have you know um, more important needs, um, must be privileged over non-parents. It says that non-parents are immature, lazy, selfish, <laughs> haven't grown up. Um, are sort of missing the point in a way and so yeah pronatalism is an ism I suppose because it's a construct pronatalism exists to sort of keep people towing the line of the sort of heteronormative nuclear family setup which is really what you know came out of the industrial revolution as the ideal family setup where you have the male patriarchal head of the household who makes the decisions and goes out and earns the money. And you have the female mother figure who stays home, does all the nurturing and caretaking. Um, so pronatalism is exists to sort of maintain, help maintain that dynamic. You also talked about that families, and I guess you're talking about the nuclear family as described, uh, get certain perks. And I, I remember so much of this because I, I was a single mom um, after my daughter was four years old. And I remember wondering why I had not been invited to join a food co-op, a, a kind of wholesale buying club that was part of people you know that I do. Mm. Why are they mm. getting to do this and I'm not? And when I talked to the woman who headed it up, she said, well, we really wanted to make this just for families. And I thought, is a mother and a daughter not a family? Right. And I can remember just the the hurt of somebody mm. was defining what family looked like, and I wasn't it. And right. it's a lot to live up to. We have a oh, culture that sets a lot of ridiculous standards, don't we? Absolutely. And what's interesting, the fact that she felt completely validated or entitled to say that to you <laughs> and to have that opinion and that you would say, oh, yes, of, of course, yes, families only, meaning mother, father, 2.4 children or whatever yeah. it's supposed to look like. Yeah. So there's a chapter in the book on found family and it sort of goes deep really into how um how family systems have sort of been shaped and formed over the past century or so and how family and ideas around family and what constitutes family are continuing to evolve um and will continue to evolve as we move forward um but yes this is the thing you know single mothers are subject to or independent mothers as I've heard people the term people prefer now um are subject to similar shades of stigma as women without kids I think and yeah it's um it's all coming from the same root which is pronatalism which is patriarchy so fast and I love that phrase you use shades of stigma that Mm. sounds like somebody's book (gasps) 
so or you, a 1980s band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, they were great. They were great. Um, so you talked about family structure over the past hundred years or so, but let's go back further. Let's go back to when single women, wise women, were actually murdered en masse mm. as witches. Mm -hmm. What went on and how does that relate today to independent women? So my research on this came from a fantastic book. It's called Caliban and the Witch by the feminist scholar Sylvia Federici. And it's a very, it's a, you know, it's a, an academic tome. It's incredibly well-researched and referenced. And she, um, she talks about the transition from feudalism to capitalism when a sort of newly minted owning class essentially made a kind of a land grab, grab ring fencing the natural resources of the earth and kind of, you know, creating the, the capitalist industrialist system and economy that we live under still within this system women were required in that role of nurturing homemaker caregiver and also I think she uses this term or maybe it was um Adrian Rich who uses this term in her book of woman born women were essentially the um oh sorry <laughs> I think the term the um i'll just say the machines or the technologies of reproduction what this capitalist system of labor required was constant cheap labor you know and the more people we had the more cheap labor there was right um and so women were required to have as many children as possible to sort of keep feeding into this this labor market this labor machine so any women who existed outside of that paradigm women who did not marry or did not want to marry refused to marry women who um had learned how to work with their cycles to disrupt their menstrual cycle and prevent themselves from becoming pregnant um using you know the lunar cycles different herbs women who um yeah were queer um were branded witches <laughs> And hunted and murdered and then we have yeah the the genocide the witch genocide i suppose um that occurred during this period so federici paints this this genocide the witch hunts as kind of integral to this transition from feudalism to capitalism um which goes pretty deep and is quite a painful and traumatizing legacy that actually is in all of our lineages you know as women of european descent and of course, it impacted women in other continents also. Um, so, yeah, I, I talk about that. And I think that this this concept of the witch or the crone is still something that, um, yeah, it's still we still sort of see women without kids that way in certain circles. You know, she's she's a bit dangerous or she's um, deviant in some way. It, it was a very interesting feeling for me, and I remember very clearly when I was noticeably pregnant, it was as if the arms of society reached out to embrace me in a mm -hmm. way that they never had before, because I'd always been quirky and a little bit odd, and I did yoga, and I didn't eat meat, and I 
read a lot of old books. And so I, I think that I, I just either I felt or it was in fact true that the world kind of didn't know what to do with me. And mm -hmm. once I was pregnant, it was as if I had joined or succumbed. I'm not quite sure. I remember that I really liked it because mm -hmm. I remember feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm finally doing something right. Thank you, everybody. Yes, you can pat my tummy, even though you didn't <sighs> ask. And I hadn't thought about a lot of these things, you know, until reading your book, which is why I can so wholeheartedly recommend this book to anybody, whatever your relationship is to motherhood, because it just brings out a, a lot um, that I think is is societal and that we kind of all are making our way through. Mm -hmm. So a word that comes up often in your book is selfish. Mm -hmm. And is that something that you were told or that was implied to you? And I think you said when you were younger, you got more of the, when are you going to have kids than yes. you get now? Yes. But was it, was selfish packed in there? Selfish is not necessarily something people have said directly to my face. Um, I've definitely had it in book reviews posted online where I've written in my books about not having children, my other books about not having children. Um, and it's definitely something that I've seen in the media a lot and also levied or lobbed at kind of other child-free or childless people. Um, I think Pope Francis came out a couple of years ago and said that people who don't have children are selfish. Um, so yes, this is definitely a word, a that is used in the pejorative to speak about people who, and specifically people who choose not to have children. I make the point, of course, in the book that sometimes that choice is a conscious, I'm not doing this. Sometimes that choice is more like the result of the net effect rather of lots and lots and lots of small choices about everything from where we live to how close we are with our family of origin to the kind of career path we might choose to other pursuits that we might want to prioritize over having children that kind of the net result means that we just wound up not doing that thing you know yes um so yeah I think the selfish the selfish tag is definitely used and I actually and I think you'll probably appreciate this of course I, I make the point multiple times during the book that it is absolutely not selfish to live your life the way you want to live your life if anything this is what kind of America is built on that concept you know the land of the free we should be free to make the choice to live our life how we want to live our life it should not be seen as selfish and I don't actually know if I in the book I kind of spell it out this clearly but or maybe I do I think it could equally be seen as selfish to have a child if you think or you're having a child because you think it's going to make you happy and 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 bring a level of fulfillment to you personally it's a selfish choice then to have a child um but yeah I do I've been thinking about it more and it's sort of been percolating even since I finished the manuscript I think that perhaps the selfish piece is also there's a tinge of how selfish to not give the gift of life to another human being how selfish to, to sort of hoard this life force energy that you embody and not pay that back, pay that forward to, to another, to another being. So I think there's maybe something in that, although I think generally, yeah, selfish is 
oh, you don't, you're not prepared to um, make the sacrifices that are involved in raising a child. I think that's largely why that word is used for to talk about childless and child-free people. It was an interesting word every time I came upon it in the book because I have found over my lifetime that when I have needed help, it has very often come from friends who don't have children because mm. friends who have children are busy with their children. And, right. and that's understandable. Mm. But, you know, the, the others always seemed like, even though the, the people with children weren't necessarily selfish, they were just busy. Mm. And, and the others, you know, had, had some time to give to someone else. I guess, you know, that's the thing, that if we could live in a society where everybody was fulfilling themselves and spilling over with this life energy to to ripple out to those who are of that frequency to to get it everything would just be so good it wouldn't matter that mm. somebody has no children and and you know maybe somebody else wants to have 10 i don't know maybe in the mm -hmm. current world that's not a good idea for anybody but i'm sure it fulfills some people and to mm. just be able to say different strokes. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, that's really at the beating heart of this book is about saying it's okay to live your life the way you want to live your life and to acknowledge that while all humans share similar needs, largely on a kind of like biological and material level, we all have different personalities we all have different gifts we all have different dreams passions fears aversions that shape who we are and the choices that we make and the, the ways that we're going to feel fulfilled so let's empower everybody to live the lives that they are here to live you know rather than saying oh you were born with these reproductive parts and therefore you must do this quite specific thing you know well, let us just breathe for a moment on empowerment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ruby, there was another phrase in this fascinating book that isn't specifically about having children or not having children, but I so related to it and I wanted to ask you about it. You said that you grew up as I did, but I never had a phrase for it before, mixed class. <laughs> so your paternal grandparents had wealth that you didn't have in your immediate home. And in my case, my father had money, but I was usually with this nanny that, that I mentioned earlier, this mother figure who didn't have money. And we would go to the five and dime and she could say, you can have a milkshake or a hot dog which, you know, with my dad, it was lobster Newberg. Mm. And that is just a goofy way to grow up. But I'm sure since mm. there are two of us, uh, some of our listeners may relate to what was your experience with the mixed class thing? Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that because I find it fascinating. I can't remember where I first saw the term. It's not an original term of mine, but I haven't seen it widely used. Um, but yes, as you described, my 
parents, my parents separated when I was one, or at least they were still, they didn't live together. Um, they had my brother when I was three and then officially divorced when I was about eight, but I never lived in a house with both my parents. Um, and my dad's father was quite wealthy. Like he was an architect. He was self-made. He had done very well for himself though. He'd built his own architectural firm and they lived in a nice house and had a nice TV and, you know, they, they had some money. My mother had very, had no money, <laughs> you know, and my dad, I guess he paid sort of base, he paid basic household expenses, but we lived in a tiny two bedroom cottage with no frills and you know just nothing fancy my mum made a lot of our clothes she made our bread like it was just a very kind of basic DIY existence um and so yeah I, I my grandparents paid for me to go to a private school from age I think like 10 through 16 or 11 through 16 that awkward age when all you really want is to fit in and of course, all my schoolmates had their co- one thing that kind of sums this up. My school friends would get dropped off at the school gates in their parents' Mercedes and BMWs. I would make my mom drop me off around the corner in her little rusty Citroen, you know, because I was so embarrassed for anyone to see the car that my mom drove. Um, and yeah, it kind of, I grew up, I would say sort of wealth adjacent, but there was always the sense that that wasn't for us, but it made me, it opened a window onto a world of comfort and ease um, where people could have what they wanted when they wanted it and could have new clothes. And it made me want those things, honestly. And I went on to have a career working in women's magazines, which basically exist in order to promote these kind of luxurious lifestyles. Um, And so, yeah, these are things that I wanted for myself. And so pursuing my career and pursuing creating financial abundance for myself was a priority. And partly that stemmed from, I just remember money being a constant or lack of money being a constant source of anxiety. The constant ambient sort of noise in our household was there's not enough money. There's not enough money. And yet we were sort of connected to these people who could have helped us out but didn't for whatever reason and so yeah I have I guess money issues as a result and so not having enough money is still one of the things that gives me the most intense anxiety like can't sleep enough can't sleep at night anxiety and I know I'm not alone in that and so when I I guess, you know, one of the factors of, into do I want to have a child? I knew that having a child becoming a mother would seriously compromise my earning capacity. You know, the mother, the, the gender wage gap is in fact a motherhood wage gap. It's working mothers who are penalized when it comes to wages and, and earning potential. Childless women earn virtually on a par with men. And so, yeah, I can't lie that uh, it would be lying to say that that wasn't a factor in my decision, you know, and I've, I've wrestled with my kind of, you know, privilege around wanting or prioritizing, I suppose, having a comfortable life over having a child, you know, and I decided to stop guilting myself about that and just to enjoy my life, honestly. (laughs) 
What a great idea. What a great idea. That was really my, my resolution coming into 2023 was like, what if my what if my life purpose is just to enjoy my life and appreciate what I've got, you know, and just enjoy it? <laughs> oh, that's a that's a lovely thought. It just takes so much of the weight off. I think mm. some of us are very serious. And I don't know that everybody listening would necessarily relate to that, but a lot of the people that I know are just very concerned about everything that's going on and about Mm. what can I do and did Mm. I do enough today? And of course, it's important to show up and do what we can to, to make things better. But to just have underneath that, you know what? I'm kind of supposed to enjoy myself too while I'm here. I don't think those two things need to be mutually exclusive. I think it's possible to enjoy your life and do good work and be part of the solution, you know? Oh, but this is about, I think, this is about recognizing, are, are you familiar with the School of Life? Yes. So for people who are listening who don't know, they're a philosophical organization based in the UK and they do great, these great little YouTube videos about these sort of philosophical conundrums. <laughs> and there was one about, should I have children? Should you have children or not? And they talk in that video about how, being human entails a degree of suffering. A degree of suffering is inevitable for human beings. The trick is to try to figure out which kinds of suffering you are best suited to. And then they sort of talked about the, you know, the kinds of suffering that come with parenthood, the kinds of suffering that come with non-parenthood. And I just thought it was such an interesting way of looking at things. It's like whatever path we choose, there's going to be a degree of suffering and discomfort and perhaps by sort of orienting towards the kinds of suffering and discomfort we know we're more resilient to or we know more, we have more capacity to to manage or to incorporate or to work within our lives we can sort of minimize our exposure to unnecessary suffering and get on get to grips and sort of get down and dirty with the necessary suffering of evolving of self-sacrifice of you know contributing something meaningful and working hard on that Mm, so I think that there are certain kinds of suffering even that can be enjoyable when when we're equipped to sort of work with that sort of suffering if that makes sense it it totally does and it seems like it's the essence of western philosophy and that explanation and when I look at it through an Eastern lens that I've studied a lot, it's almost like karma. It's like, it's mm-hmm. going to show up. So you mm-hmm. can move to Madagascar and that's great, but certain things will come into your life that you have to deal with, whether you're there or whether you're here. Right. And it's that that lovely acceptance of, of what is and being able to be happy, which is mm-hmm. such a gift and a talent. I want to talk with you a little bit, Ruby, about the next generation. Because for me, I, I did have my lovely daughter, and she has opted not to have children. And mm-hmm. just like you said that when you were younger, people were saying, when are you going to have kids? When my daughter was younger, I got quite a bit of the, when is your daughter going to have kids? And I remember thinking, how inappropriate is that? (laughs) Now ask her yourself. Um, But it is interesting to me that there is this idea of the biological lineage 
stops here. Mm. And that's a fact, but it's not, at least for me, a tragedy. Mm. Mm -hmm. what, what have you looked at in, uh, in, in the further legacy of uh, when, when the childbearing ceases? Well, it's interesting. So I looked, I sort of, I talk about what it might be like for women without kids to be nobody's grandma, you know, and within that, looking at how one of the only sort of valid roles for older women in our society is the grandmother figure. I mean, talk about witch or crone, like these are words that are used to describe older women who don't have children, right? Um, and so who therefore don't have grandchildren. Um, but I also talk about how the expectation that women will mature into this sort of, it's almost the most idealized or sentimentalized, I think, of the feminine role models, this grandmother figure who is all nurturing and, you know, wise and, and all comforting. Um, the pressure to, to make our mothers grandmothers is something else that women who are choosing not to have children sort of feel as well. You know, how will my mother be perceived if I don't have children, if she's not a grandmother, you know? Um, and so I suppose where I, where I get to in that part is, well, we just need more varied role models for all of the different roles that older women can play in society and can embody and be celebrated for. So that's something I hope will come out of this conversation about what it means to be a woman without kids. And that hopefully will also have a positive effect for women like yourself who have had children, but who are not going to, not going to be grandmothers. Yes. In terms of the lineage ending with us, I mean, that chapter gets quite deep. It is something I've thought about a lot. And it's something I thought about um, in particular, after I learned more about the women and the mothers in my lineage and just how much suffering there had been how much unnecessary suffering there had been because of the rigid rules of patriarchy and women's role um you know stories of abandonment and abuse and having their children taken from them and being institutionalized and just so much unnecessary suffering due to a lack of compassion and a lack of understanding and humanity honestly and so part of me feels like my decision not to have children is putting a stop to that the suffering experienced by the women and the mothers in my lineage um not to sound make it sound too noble or anything but there's a sense of that in my in my deciding consciously for to end my lineage with me like I said my, my brother has a child so and it's what's interesting is that my father's only sister um she has two sons who each had a son and then my brother has a son as well. So from that particular lineage on my father's side in particular, I am the last female, <laughs> which I just think is quite interesting. Um, it's almost like there was something that was just ready to end here with me and the, the men in that, you know, that branch of the family tree have some more things to work out karmically. <laughs> I'm not sure. I haven't studied karma too deeply, but, um, yeah, I, that it, it can feel sad that there's something ending and there can also be a sense when it's done consciously and really owned in that way of, 
I'm claiming this. And in some ways I'm going to live my life on behalf of the women in my lineage who couldn't live theirs the way that they wanted to. Mm, That's fascinating. So before we move on, as as we come to an end, I do want to talk to you about some of of your other interests, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we are uh, devoting ourselves primarily to Women Without Kids by Ruby Warrington. It is a fabulous book. I mean, seriously, you've got to read it. But I wanted to just talk about um, something that comes from Rianne Eisler, who's one of the Mm. many people who endorsed your book. You have a lot of fans. But she had said, and this is not a direct quote, but as women's status rises in the family and the state, men start to embrace more of what we think of as female qualities, more gentleness. Can you riff on that a little bit? Oh, I'm so happy you brought that up. You've picked pinpointed some really some of my really favorite sort of pieces, <laughs> little the little details. So Rianne is a social scientist for people who aren't familiar, who coined the term caring economy. So she is, a lot of her work is about sort of um, bringing forth what Steven Pinker calls our better angel capacities for caring, empathy, um, community, interdependence, and sort of putting these front and center in terms of the way that society and the economy is structured. And so she talks about, in that quote, she's talking about how, and she's studied this, in countries where you have more women in positions of power in government, in business, in the arts, et cetera, we we begin to associate power with feminine qualities as much as masculine qualities. And so men in positions of power no longer feel the need to dominate, to compete, to um, fight, which we might, which we are, which we consider, you know, masculine. And I'm putting air quotes around that masculine qualities. They can obviously be embodied by people of both sexes. But the more we see feminine qualities, nurturance, caring, interdependence, empathy being associated with power, the more we see it, the more, the less, like I said, yeah, the less that men feel the need to kind of like act out these, what could almost be considered sort of toxic masculine. Um, ways of being and so you see societies that begin to embrace policies that are more caring that are more pro-family versus pro-natalist the difference between pro-natalism would say everybody just needs to have children pro-family policies would say we need to do what we can to support people who have families there's a a subtle difference there right (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, I love Rianne's work and it was such a thrill to interview her for the book. And I'm so pleased that she endorsed it as well. But I just love that concept. And I, and I bring it up to, to make the point that given how challenging it is to raise children whilst also giving yourself to your career at the kind of level that is required in order to sort of reach positions of real influence, um, the more women without kids, the more women will rise to those positions of influence and the more of a gender balanced society we might start to see as a result, which is not to say there aren't tons of mothers, you know, reaching those kinds of positions, but it often takes a huge amount of resource for a person to be able to do that. Um, and so those options aren't available to all mothers. Um, and, and sadly, yes, sometimes 
that has to be an either or. Well, thank you for more um, more of your thoughts on that because it's a wonderful concept, the idea mm -hmm. that some of these qualities that don't necessarily have to belong to women. I mean, mm. I know lots of men who just embody these, these mm. qualities, just exquisitely heterosexual men, homosexual men, but we still say, oh, that's that's a feminine way of being when someone is is kind and nurturing. So let's just exactly. all and there be are that. plenty of you know competitive, domineering women as well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah, it's not about a, it's not a, a a battle of the sexes. You know, yes. it's more about thinking, yeah, about these qualities as actually sort of being applicable to both genders or both yes. sexes um and then saying from there well what do we as a as a society need more of well yes. it's a strong argument at this point in our in our human evolution i think for more empathy more caring more collaboration less competition less violence less greed mm. and more reading so i want to move <laughs> from the focus specifically on your wonderful book to one of the other hats that you wear, and that is as an editor and a book doula. Mm -hmm. And as an author myself, I'm very interested in the state of books mm. <laughs> and and the the future of reading. Mm. So where do you come down on that? Oh, gosh, <laughs> I don't really know. I mean, oh. I guess, I mean, the pandemic statistics showed that people started reading a lot more during the pandemic. Um, I guess people had more time on their hands. I think more books are being published and sold than at any point in history. And on the other hand, we've got books being burned, you know, in certain places. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Because then on the other, other hand, <laughs> we've got people, you know, people's, attention spans just hemorrhaging due to the amount of time that we spend on social media um a lot more people listening to books a lot more people listening to shorter books um I don't know like I said I've always found so much comfort and inspiration in books and reading and I continue to and that's why I'm so grateful that I've been able to create a career where I can do this I can write my own books and I just absolutely love doodling people through the process of writing their books you know which really is about just holding their hand through every stage of the book creation process that's kind of what I do in my day job it brings yes. me so much fulfillment and I know that this is a way that I can really use my gifts in a way that is deeply beneficial to other people not just the authors but the people who then read their books you know yeah so I don't know I I I'm hopeful that people will always read and will always find comfort and solace and inspiration in books and yeah, but I don't know, Victoria, maybe books will die out with us <laughs> and future generations will just be, I don't know, scanning, scanning downloads from the sky or something. Well, I hope not. <laughs> and, and you can find out more about Ruby at her website, rubywarrington.com. Warrington has two R's. And, and this tells you about her, her work as a book doula uh, and other things. So just a, a couple of other areas that you have had a lot to say about in the past, and I presume the present, where is the sober curious thing? I seem to see a lot more people on social media talking about being sober and celebrating that 
as mm -hmm. something wonderful that they've come upon in life. And we're not talking about middle-aged people in the throes of alcoholism. We're just talking about young people and all kinds of people that just feel that their life is better when they're not pouring alcohol on it. What do you see from your vantage point on that? Yeah, I mean, this is absolutely what I see. It's it's a it's a movement, and it's a movement away from alcohol as our um, sort of easy to access medicator, easy to access, apply to any anything that hurts medicator. You know, um, which I can only see as a positive thing, given the um, negative side effects that even you know minimal amounts of alcohol can can have hold for people. So yeah, it's been incredibly gratifying. My book, So Be Curious, came out literally on the last day of 2018. So 19, 20, 20. it's been out for four years now and it's been incredible over that time period to see, yeah, not drinking become, if not the norm, certainly normalized, you know, particularly again among younger generations. Um, and with that whole movement um, and a whole new industry and the kind of adults alcohol-free beverages category, which I am so excited to see happening. So yeah, it's been incredible to, to witness that happening. And I think that, yeah, it just speaks again to this desire to be more conscious, mm, a yes. desire to be more present with, with the, the pain and the pleasure of being human. You yes. know, um, I think it's Brené Brown who says you can't selectively numb emotion if you numb the dark, you numb the light. And when we use alcohol to numb the pain of our lives, we're not able to fully access the joy either, you know? And so, yeah, I think I see a willingness on behalf of anybody who's getting sober curious to actually be with their suffering, to be with the painful parts of life and to work with those parts rather than just kind of numbing out and pretending they don't exist. And the stigma, I think, of you're no fun because you're mm. not drinking, that seems to be dying down quite a bit. Have you found that in your social circles? I seem to remember having a conversation with this where you would yeah, <laughs> subject, subject, people seem to, people seem to be very like, and seem very entitled to tell you what they think about your lifestyle choices, Victoria. <laughs> but I seem to remember you telling me that you got called no fun for not yeah, having a glass of wine at a dinner. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was called that. That was some years ago. But it just mm. seems that as I listen to other people talk about their lives, that, that there aren't people like feeling that they have to order a drink and sort of sip at it, even if they don't want it, just mm. so that somebody else won't say something. Well, I think that's a fantastic development, you know, and I think that, like I said, the fact that you in many bars, particularly New York, you're so lucky there, there's such a great options often for sort of alcohol-free alternatives that aren't like an orange juice or a Coke, you know, mm. um, that makes it easier for people to order something else. But yeah, I think you're right. I think the stigma around whether you call it sober or whether you just are a non-drinker, I think the stigma is being lessened around that, definitely. And finally, I, I want to ask you, um, your first book that I read was Material Girl, Mystical World. And I think you're a very mystical girl, uh, <laughs> but tell, tell us where, where you are right now with your spirituality. Oh, I suppose it's interesting. Like I remember after Sober Curious came out and after I had been, you know, actively engaged with removing alcohol from my life 
I remember really feeling that this actually was the practice that I had needed all along in order to connect more fully with my spirit, with my spiritual self, you know? And so I think living this sober life is the most spiritually connected I've felt in that I just feel very present for my life, you know, and everything in it, the people in it, the situations in it, the thoughts, feelings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I still use astrology as a daily practice to sort of connect to and communicate with the universal um, forces that are at play. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of where I'm at with it, I suppose. It's less something that I'm consciously thinking about and more just a way of being now. Oh, I think that means it's embodied, Uh, (laughs) which is the point, isn't it? (laughs) Ruby, thank you so much. This has been so much fun for me and I hope fun for all of the listeners. The book is Women Without Kids and the website is rubywarrington.com. And you can also find me at victoriamoran.com. Got some book stuff going on. Hopefully I'll have some good news to share about that next time. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. If you want more information about where to find Ruby, how to order the book, et cetera, et cetera, there at victoriamoran.com, we do have show notes, but you know what? We also have Google. You can find anybody (laughs) anywhere. And that is one of the wonderful things about its being 2023. Go out and be remarkable. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can learn more about Victoria or contact her at victoriamoran.com. Be part of her inner circle by joining the Victoria Moran podcast listeners group on Facebook. And if you're a vegan looking to up your game, check out Victoria's acclaimed training and certification program, Main Street Vegan Academy at mainstreetvegan.com. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of A Guided Life Podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.